0: I wonder if you just turn back to that passage we had read uh, a moment ago to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, page 1052 in the Church Bibles. You'll find it helpful to have that open uh, just in front of you. Uh, the verse that I, I'm uh, really wanting to kind of zone in on and focus on, although I'm not going to get there till the end, is uh, verse 27. That's the main thing that I want to share with us today. It's verse 27. And we'll only get there at the end, but uh, when we do get there, you'll see why uh, it's such an important, such a wonderful promise, and we'll see uh, what it's a promise about as well. Verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men, with men and women, is possible with God. So that's kind of the focus uh, that I want to get to in, in, in just a moment. Uh, but in order to get there, I just want to share some other things from the passage uh, that we had read. Something is—it's very strange, uh, but it's—it's uh, it's absolutely true of Christianity. If you do this, if you take what you think Christianity means, all right. If you take what you think Christianity means and reverse it, flip it round. What you flip it round to be is more likely to be true than what you first thought. All right? Often Christianity is the very reverse to what most people assume it is. Okay. So let me just illustrate that uh, for uh, a moment. Uh, most people, some people, I think most people think this, uh, think that God in heaven keeps a, a, a huge register book And in that register book, on every single page, uh, there is, well, you've got a page and I've got a page. At the top of the page is your name. And underneath your name are two columns. One column is all the bad things you've done in your life, and the other column is all the good things you've done in your life. And the assumption goes like this, and uh, the assumption that Christianity goes like this, is that when it comes to the Day of Judgment, God will get out his great big book and he will find your page, you'll find Ian's page there, and you'll have a look down and you'll look at the two columns, all the good things that he's done, and you'll look at all the bad things that Ian has done, and you'll just get down to the bottom and you'll see which one is longest. If it's uh, all the bad things, then for Ian, it would be, well, judgment and hell. If it's all the good things then it will be heaven. That's the assumption that people, people make. Uh, uh, and it's uh, the assumption that that's what the Bible teaches. It's the assumption that what, that's what Christianity is about. It's about being good. Uh, it's the assumption, basically, that only good people go to heaven. Alright? Have you come across that assumption? The assumption most people have, the assumption people make about Christianity, is that heaven is only for good people. All right? Now, I said a moment ago, if you take what people assume Christianity is saying, it's great to see all these takes coming by here. If you take what Christianity, people assume Christianity to be saying and flip it round and reverse it, the reverse that you come to is the truth rather than the way you started. Assumption people think that only heaven is for good people, that only good people go to heaven. Reverse it. Heaven's only for bad people, which is true. It's the latter. The Bible teaches us that heaven will only be populated by bad people, not good people. This is where this passage that we had read uh, comes in uh, to uh, help us uh, rather a lot. Just uh, if you look, before we uh, had our reading begin, it's got the, the, the little story there of Jesus engaging with little children. Uh, And um, uh, the the fact that what's going on here in Jesus' teaching and the the events in his life is that entry to the kingdom of God, entry to heaven, is a shock. And uh, we get, just before our reading, the story Jesus tells of a tax collector and a Pharisee. And uh, the Pharisee, basically in Jesus' day, as in every single day since Jesus' day, tax collectors have always been hated. People have always despised those that have come along and wanted to take our money off us. And no one's ever liked them, but in Jesus' day they, they were hated for particular reasons. Not only did they collect the taxes, but they were, they were crooks. They were generally uh, rodent types who had colluded with the occupying Roman forces. They were, basically they were traitors. So they were strongly despised by everyone around. And on Jesus' day, if you thought of a tax collector, and if you asked in your mind, would a tax collector ever get to heaven? Would a tax collector ever be welcomed into the kingdom of God? You'd work through the assumption, yep, God gets out his big register book, he looks for the tax collector's page, he looks down the page, he looks at all the bad things he's done, and he looks at all the good things he's done. The assumption is that he's done hardly any good things. All he's ever done is bad things. He's colluded with the Roman rulers. He's robbed us of all of our money. It's hell for him. That's the assumption. But Jesus flips things right around. Look at verse 14 in the Bible there. Jesus said this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the reverse happened. The person you wouldn't expect to, get into the, to be welcomed by God, to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, was welcomed by Jesus. And then after that, we get this little story of the little children engaging with Jesus. And we'll come back to them in a moment, and we're going to flip right on over, and we're going to look at this rich young ruler. So we've looked at this, uh, this tax collector very briefly and then there's this rich young ruler and in between the story of the tax collector and the rich young ruler you've got uh, what, uh, the, the story of the, the little children being brought to Jesus. It, it is what Ian Jones called in our church a couple of weeks ago when he came and preached. This is a burger passage. all right? You've got the two slices of bread and in the middle you've not got four nice bits of meat. You've got one really juicy steak. That's the children, all right? It's a burger. It's a burger passage, all right? I knew you'd connect with that, and you did straight away. All right? So we've uh, we've got the tax collector. He's one slice of the bread. And underneath, we've got the rich young ruler. Let's turn to him next, shall we? The rich young ruler, he oozes wealth. He's rich, and he's a ruler. So he's got money, and he's got power. And uh, I guess that if this fellow turned up in your church this morning, uh, and uh, was looking like he wanted to become a member here, looking like he wanted to be your friend, he's not the kind of person you would turn away. You'd say, "Well, come on in." <laughs> you know, a guy with money and a guy with influence and power—you're not going to say, "Well, you can't come here." You'd say, "Well, yeah, you very open the doors, welcome him in." Uh, and uh, I guess that your treasurer. Uh, would be the last person that, you know, you know they'd, be very, very, they'd be very unhappy if you, if you were to turn the, the rich young ruler away. And if you sidled up to Ian and said, Ian, I'm thinking about joining your church here. If Ian said, well, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. Well, would Ian do that? In his mind, he's thinking, well, you know, we want to grow the church here. We want to get to that tipping point in terms of growth. We, and, and in order to grow, uh, we want to grow the kingdom of God. And uh, we see that we need all sorts of things to grow the kingdom of God in Rotherham. Uh, we need not just Ian as pastor. We need an assistant pastor. We need uh, Jice there to stay on for, for two years. And we need to replace him after that as well. We, we, need, we need people. And people means money. You're not going to turn them away, are you? So quickly. <laughs> But Jesus asked a question to this guy and he does the opposite to what we would expect. If we add to all of the things I've been saying about this rich young ruler in Jesus' day, rich, being wealthy, meant that God had blessed you. That's what the assumption was. It meant that God liked you. And so he's just the kind of man that you would expect to be in God's good books. That's what's going on here. The tax collector was the last kind of person you'd expect to be in God's good books. Here's a guy that you would expect to be right up there with the very best. This rich young ruler. So uh, two R's. He's rich. He's a ruler. He's kind of a, a Rolls Royce kind of a person. Let's add another R to that. He's a religious Rolls Royce kind of a person. You know, he, he is, he's, he's got morally very, very high standards and deeds. He says that he's kept the Ten Commandments all of his life. Look at verse, uh, verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and your mother. You know, you think of the God's book on this guy, the register in heaven, and he's got a really long list of all the good things he's done, and he's able to say it. Verse 21, all things are, these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. I don't think he's being arrogant. It's plain true. He was a godly man. He was a religious man. Rich, a ruler. Rich, powerful and religious. Religiously faithful. A godly man as well. So imagine the day of judgment. This page in uh, God's register. These two columns. All the good stuff. Fantastically long. Bad stuff. Very few. Surely God's going to welcome him. Surely God's going to welcome him. Surely you'd welcome him into your church. The question is, does Jesus welcome him? Well, we're told uh, that, uh, by Luke that this guy went away very sad. So he didn't end up amongst Jesus' disciples. He didn't end up at this point in God's kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom. He went away very sad. Why did he go away sad? Well, uh, he'd asked Jesus a question a very important question, uh, one of the most important questions you could ever ask. Look at uh, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How does Jesus react to him? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. See, Jesus, in his question in response, puts his finger on on this man's problem, this man called Jesus good teacher, so he was probably really saying, "No, Jesus, you're a good man. You're a good. You're a good guy. You're a good bloke. You're a bit posh. You're a good chap. You're, you know, a posh guy from a posh part of town. You're a good fellow." Uh, straight away, his questions assuming that it's possible to be good enough for God. Jesus says no one can be good except God alone. But he assumes you can be good enough for God. In fact, he didn't just think that you could, someone somewhere might generally be good enough for God. He thought that he might be able to be good enough for God. He asked the question, what must I do? What must I do? To inherit eternal life. You're a good bloke, Jesus. What does a good bloke like me have to do to ensure that I've really done enough to make sure I get into the kingdom of God? He assumed he could do it. Jesus tests him. Can he be good enough for God? Which is where that question about the Ten Commandments comes in. Look again at verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father, and your mother. And he says, verse 21, he's done it since he was a kid. Uh-huh, uh-huh. look again at verse 20. Jesus there gives uh, the second half, as it were, of the Ten Commandments, but he misses one out. Which of the second half of the Ten Commandments does he miss out? Have a look again. Shout it out once you've spotted it. Which commandment is missing? The first? Well, yeah, yeah. Jesus doesn't do the first four commandments. He goes straight to the ones, the second half of the commandments. He He doesn't include, uh, you know, to, to have no other gods before me and no idols. He goes straight to the second half of the commandments. But there's a really important one missing in the second half. Which one is it? Do not covet. That's right. Number ten is missed off. He goes through them all and he misses out number ten. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's donkey or read bicycle or motorbike or car or whatever it is these days. You shall not covet your uh, neighbour's manservant or maidservant. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbour's. Jesus doesn't put that in. And in doing that, he sets the trap. Can this guy be good enough for God? Looks like some folks are coming back on through. (laughs) Right. Can this guy be good enough for God? Uh, Well, it it seems to me uh, that uh, he's got a problem with uh, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Uh, And uh, you see, if... um, if, if, if he's broken the Ten commandment, you shall not covet, then it's highly like you're absolutely right. Jesus doesn't ask him about the first commandment either. You see, if, if he loves money and he's coveting money, then he's broken the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. If he's coveting money and he's living his life for money, then he's broken the second commandment, you shall not make unto yourself no I- idols. He's broken those first two uh, uh, as well. Uh, And so verse 22, Jesus says of the commandments that he has read to him, when he heard this, he became very sad because, uh, well, he, he says to him, you lack one thing, sorry, verse 22, you lack one thing, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. He was addicted to his money. And, and he makes a choice here. Uh, I, I was never very good at mathematics at all. Somehow I ended up doing a degree in engineering. Uh, I read a book called Mathematics, A Second Start. And I read it about eight times and I still don't understand it. But I do understand some things. I've read a little bit about Blaise Pascal, his great French mathematician, uh, and uh, fantastically good with working out odds and th- uh, and uh, and the like in statistics, uh, and uh, Blaise Pascal was a great theologian as well, uh, and he applied his mathematics and his logic to uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, and one day he basically said this that uh, it, it's an absolute, it, it's absolutely obvious statistically, to make the choice to become a Christian, because. If you look at it logically, if you become a Christian, in the short term you've not got a lot to lose. You know, you might be laughed at. You might take a you know a little bit, a few hits as it were for becoming a Christian and being a fool. But in the you say, in the short term, you've got you're not got a lot to lose. But in the, in the long term, you've got everything to gain. You know, heaven could be yours. Whereas if you don't become a Christian, in the short term. Well, there's not a lot to gain, really, over the next uh, 60 or 70 years. But after that, you've got the whole of eternity to lose. And so Blaise Pascal, that's the music as well. But Blaise Pascal basically said it's an absolute no brainer become a Christian because you've got nothing to lose and you've got everything to gain. This rich young ruler, he's there before Jesus, and Jesus says, Give up all you've got now is isn't that much really in the long term. And be wealthy in heaven in 50 billion years' time. And you would have been wealthy between 50 billion years' time and now. And he doesn't do it. You can see how addicted to the money he is. Absolutely addicted. And uh, he's uh, broken God's law uh, about serving God and God alone and uh, his uh, problem is summarised there in verses 24 and 25, Jesus looked at him and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God indeed it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God now, you know Jesus there talks about the eye of a needle I've got a, got a needle in my pocket here it's the biggest one I could find of my wife's needles. Uh, I think it's um, probably used for—I um, know sewing leather, leather or something like that. It's quite a big needle, uh, but and so the hole in it—it's pretty big. Some people think that Jesus, at this point, talking about the eye of the needle, is talking about one of the gates into Jerusalem, uh, sort of—you uh, know—a portico, and, and the camel had to have all its luggage taken off it before it could fit through. I don't think he, I think he's talking about that. Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. You'll love one and hate the other. You can't have two masters. Money's a big problem. You've got to get rid of it. It, It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than than for a camel to pass through that needle. I remember at the age of 10, I was born and brought up in Africa. My father and I, I was about 10 years old, approached a camel that had just given birth to take some photographs of it. It wasn't very pleased with us approaching too near. It came for us. I tell you, I ran like anything. My dad did too. He fell over. I didn't stop and wait for him. I was straight back to the Land Rover. Like that. Closed the door. Left him out there. How courageous I am. The the camel's huge when you're 10. Massive beast. Get it through that? No. Be careful. You see, you don't actually have to have a lot of money to be a lover of money. You can be quite poor and be, uh, be envious and, and, and looking for money. You've got to be very, very careful. You can't serve God and money. Well, then, uh, the, these are the assumption in Jesus' day is if you're rich, God's blessed you. See, Jesus reversed things. He's reversing things. And uh, because this guy goes away and isn't welcomed, or doesn't welcome himself, doesn't say yes to the invitation, uh, look at verse 26. Everyone's baffled. Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Jesus turns everything on its head. He reverses things. Uh, you know, this, if this good man isn't good enough for heaven, then what hope is there for anybody? That's what the disciples and everyone trying to say. Who then can be saved? You know, what hope is there for this, uh, for this rich man? If there's no hope for him, what hope is there for you? If there's no hope for him, then there's uh, what hope is there for me? If there's no hope for this guy or for me, for you, what hope is there for Rotherham? If there's no hope for anybody, why why carry on with your... Why have a mission in March if if there's no hope? Uh, And then uh, we come, uh, uh, as it were, to the key verse that I wanted uh, to draw to our attention. The big thing I want to say, verse 27. Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. See, if this guy can't be saved, then it's impossible for anyone to be saved. But what's impossible for men, for men and women, is possible with God. That is uh, Jesus' statement here. That is Jesus' promise. It means that in actual fact, verse 27 is true, it means there's hope for everybody. If it's impossible, whether it, if, if it's not down to us, if it's down to God, then it... Heaven is open to everybody. It's open to the rich, it's open to the religious, it's open to the powerful, it's open to the poor, it's open to the sinful, it's open to tax collectors, it's open to the most miserable person who's rejected Jesus all their lives. And this is the story right through the Bible, isn't it? There is every hope for anyone and everyone if it is all up to God. So we can go through our Bibles, we can begin with the cheating tax collector. In Jesus' story, there's hope for him. We can go for cheating and robbing Jacob, way back in Genesis, who stole his brother's birthright and inheritance. There was hope for him. God chose him. There's hope for a family that Jacob's was named... Uh, name changed to Israel, and his family was a terrible, terrible family. It was marked by jealousy and infight, uh, and all sorts of stuff went on. It was hope. God chose that family. Uh, and out of that family there came a guy called Moses. Moses was a murderer, but God chose him to use him. And so it goes on. There was a guy called David, King David. He was, he was an adulterous, lecturing bloke. He abused his power. We're stealing another man's wife, and then to come kind of get out of it, murdering the guy's wife, the, the woman's husband. There was hope for David. Jeremiah. Jeremiah cursed the day he was born. He had sunk so low in depression. In depression, we kind of think, "Well, there's no hope for me. There's no hope that God will ever love me. There's no hope that anyone will ever think anything of me." God reached down to Jeremiah, and chose him there's a hope for religious extremists and fundamentalists like Saul the Apostle Paul he wasn't going to an evangelistic mission meeting you know at Doncaster at a sort of um, a Damascus Evangelical Church he was going everywhere to, to arrest Christians and Jesus met him on the way and turned him round entry to the kingdom of God is a shock why? Because uh, we think heaven is for good people. But it's not. It's for bad people. Uh, It's not up to us. If it was, we'd never get in. It is up to God. And because it's up to Him, any sinner, anyone who's rejected God, is welcome there as they come to trust Him and turn their lives to him. So, just for a moment, as you sat there, and as I'm standing here, just in your mind's eye, go to the person that you might be praying for as you think about this mission week that's coming up. And it looks great, doesn't it? You've got this youth event. You've got the hog roast on the, on the 5th of March. Uh, and then you've got uh, the, uh, the guest service at the end uh, of that week about to happen. Who are you going to be inviting? And as you think of that person, what hope is there, do you think, of God ever rescuing them, turning them around and bringing them to faith in his son Jesus. I mean, often I, 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 think, uh, I think of friends of mine and I think there's no hope at all. So say, well, yeah, there's a good friend of mine. I've been praying for him for 13 and a half years now. He's an atheist. I thought two or three years ago there was a glimmer of hope. His mum died. Uh, and uh, his, he went with his dad to the Chapel of Rest uh, and he didn't want to go in to uh, see his mother's corpse but when he got there his dad didn't want to go in on his own uh, and so his dad said to him look would, would you come in with me so, so my friend went in with his dad and, and I think as he went into that chapel of rest and saw his mother's corpse his, I, I'm sure his, his real strong sort of strident atheism I think as he walked in I think the, the strident atheism walked out the other door Confronted with the mother he loved, dead. Uh, a week or two later, uh, his wife told my wife, they're really good friends, that uh, that he'd thrown all of his Richard Dawkins, that famous atheist author, uh, famous uh, philosopher and, and thinker and scientist from from uh, from from Oxford University, and uh, my friend had thrown all of his Richard Dawkins books in the blue bin. Uh, I told one or two of my uh, colleagues and uh, apprentices, and they said, well, I'm going to get around that because I wouldn't mind reading those. <laughs> you know, And then a week or two later, she said to him, so why, why do you throw them away? He said, well, he said, oh, I don't need them anymore. Well, that's three years ago. He still doesn't still, still seem to have moved. You think, oh yeah, maybe, but... And, as I share about my good friend, who's coming to your mind, a neighbor? Maybe at your school, maybe it's one of your teachers. Can you imagine any of your teachers becoming Christians? Maybe a, you know, a schoolmate. Maybe someone in your family, someone you've prayed for a long time, a long, long, long time. It is absolutely impossible for that person to become a Christian. That's what we're hearing in the Bible here now. Absolutely impossible. But what's impossible for you? See, your, your mission, great to have the evangelistic events, isn't it? You know, the, the hog roast. And great to have the youth event and a guest service. But you know, all that your endeavours and your strategies, You know, we, we do it as well. We, we, it's good to do it. You know, from fringe to, to, to faith. you got to do it. But it's not up to us, is it? All of our plans, they won't deliver someone to to faith. It's impossible for anyone. We've got to realise that. Absolutely impossible for anyone to come to faith, to enter the kingdom of God, to enter heaven. But verse 27, what does it say? What is impossible with Rotherham Evangelical Church, what is impossible with you, what is impossible with Christ Church Central, what is impossible with me, is possible with God. So pray. Pray for miracles. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that the best, greatest, most fantastic miracle that can ever happen these days is the conversion of one individual. A sinful person who rejects God, turning around, being born again and becoming a Christian. That isn't a miracle. It's someone going from death to life. It's someone going from darkness into light. It's someone who's on their way to hell going to heaven. What a glorious miracle. What a wonderful miracle. And it's a miracle of God. That's God's business. So what a thing to pray for. Say, Lord, you do, you work. So Rotherham can have a great blessing, a Rotherham blessing. People wonderfully converted and come into Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Saviour. So let's just come back to this, uh, the, the burger passage again. You know, we've looked, haven't we, uh, very briefly at the tax collector, the, the bottom slice of the bread there, and um, we've looked very briefly uh, at the, well, a bit longer haven't we? Uh, at the top, uh, at the rich young ruler. That, that nice bit of steak in the middle. We're not going to spend long on, long on it at all. Uh, those um, those children in between the, the two the two events that goes on, verse 15 to 17. People were bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus isn't talking about children somehow going through a a perfect phrase when when they're small. I've got four children. My eldest was 17 yesterday. My youngest is 10 going on 11. Three, three, uh, three daughters and a son, not quite you know, kept up there with, with, with Ian, with, with the five. And, um, but I mean, I, Tanya and I, we've known from the, from, from the beginning that our children are like us, sinful. And I, I, my wife Tanya was always very well behaved as a child. Uh, my children, I, I think, caused a great headache to Tanya's mum. My mother in law, because there's a lot of me in my children. And although Tanya was quite well behaved, not perfect, but quite well behaved, my children got a lot of me. You know? And she she sees that and she says, oh, goodness me. What a rebellious bunch of kids you've got there. We're all that attitude and, you know. Children aren't perfect. What Jesus is talking about here, I mean, just look at that little passage again. What do the little baby, and they're not teenagers. You know, they're they're talking about their babies. In and, and Mark's Gospel, we'll tell that Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them. You know, they're, well, they're not, they're not six foot three. They're not like, you know, they're not your, you know, big lad like you, you know, being brought by your mum and dad to Jesus and Jesus taking you and you, know. No, they're little ones. Just have a look at that little paragraph and answer this question. Shout out loud, join in, let me know that you're still there. What do the babies bring? to Jesus what do they bring to Jesus not a lot nothing how do the babies get to Jesus how do they get there they're brought do the babies do anything no (laughs) they do nothing they're babies alright they're crying at home one minute, might be having a bit of brekkie. Mum and Dad say we're going out to see a fellow called Jesus. Well, they can just gurgle and say, well, all right then, I mm. <laughs> have no choice. <laughs> Probably don't even understand what's being said. They just have taken that. They do nothing. Well, such is the kingdom of God, says Jesus. <laughs> so the tax collector, what did he bring? He brought the sins that he needed to be forgiven of. That's all he brought. The sins he needed to be forgiven of. What did the rich young ruler bring? He brought all those commandments. He thought he could do it, but he couldn't. We can't do anything. Let's pray. We're going to be doing a mission week, the same week as you. All right? We'll be praying for you. Pray for us at Christchurch Central. Pray for lots of people to realise they need to be like children. Little babies, bring nothing. Come humbly. Just bring the sin you need to be forgiven of. And let's keep praying that God in his mighty and wonderful and loving power would work. That he'd use you and use me to witness to our friends, to share the good news of Jesus with them, so they do come into his kingdom. It's a wonderful surprise, isn't it? Wonderful. It's absolutely fantastic. Without this truth, none of us would be in the kingdom of God. There'd be no hope for you. <laughs> it's absolutely precious, isn't it? And absolutely wonderful. Let me uh, lead us in a prayer. Then Ian is going to lead uh, introduce our final song. God, our Father, we thank you and we praise you for this fantastic statement of Jesus' "What is impossible with men is possible with God." We pray that you would write those words into our minds. We pray that you would write that verse into our hearts. We pray that we would believe it to be true. Uh, that we would stake our lives upon it. It was great to have that illustration earlier on in our service of what genuine faith is. Genuine faith is in solid facts. Genuine faith is in you, solid Jesus, the Jesus of promise, who died, who rose again, who reigns in glory now. Help us to trust this promise, this statement in in your word, to take it to be true, to rely upon it as we pray for our friends, to rely upon it when we invite them to hear about you, to rely upon you to be the one who transforms other people's lives just as, wonderfully, you transformed us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.